Welcome to the Tea with Brie. I'm your host, Brie. Thanks for listening. The Tea with Brie podcast is focused on deep, honest, and vulnerable conversation. Each week, I sit down with a different guest in order to have those conversations. Every week, we'll start with my guest's bio, an intro into how we know each other, and then we'll go into a deep dive conversation about whatever topic they brought to me that week. This week, I am joined by my guest, AJ Duraska. AJ Duraska, who uses she, her pronouns, is the Director of Analytics and Evaluation at People's Community Clinic, a federally qualified health center that works to improve the health of medically underserved and uninsured Central Texans by providing high-quality, affordable health care with dignity and respect. Prior to working at People's, AJ was the Senior Director of Data, Evaluation, and IT for the Safe Alliance, a merger of Austin Children's Shelter and Safe Place. AJ believes that preventing and addressing trauma in all of its forms makes all the difference, both for individuals and for the world. As such, she has taken a trauma-informed approach to her career, from education to healthcare. AJ is an alum of both Leadership Austin and New Leaders Council and co-created runforcitycouncil.org with fellow NLC alum, Hannah Mitchell. In her free time, she loves registering people to vote and getting tea with friends. Hello, friend. (laughs) Hello. So excited to have you. So to let people know, AJ and I met last year, so January 2019, um, another nlc and I, you know, we clicked right away because I think we knew, both knew Alicia and looks like you two are going to get along great. So I'm so excited to sit and chat with you today and, you know, just, just give the people all the news into, into what you're doing. And I love this topic that you picked because I've been talking a lot about it lately on the show myself because I think it's probably the route I'm going to take in order to become a parent. And so you want to talk about fostering and adopting today, which I think is just... So beautiful. So take us down, like what got you to this road of choosing fostering, adopting for for you and your husband? Yeah. So I really, since I was a kid, thought about fostering and adopting. And partly I think it's because I think I just sort of knew that I might have trouble having biological kids. But also more than that, my family had a history of intergenerational trauma and abuse. And so I just really connect with other people who have that experience. And so it made sense to me to to think about fostering or adopting through the child welfare system. And then my husband really wanted kids. I wasn't sure if I wanted kids or not. We kind of went back and forth. Um, and I finally sort of got to a point where I was like, yeah, okay, I want to have kids. And he really wanted to have a biological child. So we tried for a um, little over three years and just didn't happen. We tried um, intrauterine insemination, IUI, I might be saying that wrong. 
and that didn't work. And uh, I was diagnosed with endometriosis and I had a really low result on something that looks at how good your eggs are and basically the chances of us getting pregnant through um, IVF and through using my eggs were pretty low. So they presented the option of um, doing egg donation. And um, I have a cousin who did egg donation and has a, a beautiful son from that process. Um, but we just, we kind of looked at each other. It was really a rough, rough three years. Um, it was very emotional, a lot of grief. And we realized, well, if we're going to have a child that's not biologically, you know, not genetically related to us, why are we not just adopting? So I actually felt a lot of peace when we were sort of presented with that as like, basically they said, we think this is going to be the best route for you. And because it felt like, oh, okay, this, this makes a lot of sense now. And we had actually already started going down that route. So yeah, it's just, it's been a, it's been a tough journey because I think we don't talk about infertility a lot. And I think what I didn't understand until I went through it is the grief because like, it's, I think it's a little easier. Um, you know, we, like we all have had people in our lives pass away in one way or another. And it's a little more concrete because like, it's understandable. I am grieving this person who existed in this world. And like, I'm grieving that I'm no longer with them, but like, how do you grieve? I'm definitely going to cry in this episode. That's fine. Um, I, I'm, you know, like, how do you grieve? Um, a child you never got to meet, you know, and like, how do you oh. grieve um, all the babies you see on Facebook and like all the, all the baby announcements that we're never going to get to have and like yeah. all the baby showers. And, you know, I'm so happy for my friends that go through that process, but like, I never got pregnant. I never, you know, I never, I, I have no idea what that's like, which like then brings up, oh my gosh, like, sorry, I could ramble for forever, but like it brings up gender identity issues too, which is like, you know, I would never ever question whether someone's a woman because of like their ability to, conceive or whether they have a uterus or not like that does not define womanhood and yet like our society says that that is a part of womanhood and so it really yeah it just yeah infertility is a bitch but um I'm very grateful for therapy I'm very grateful for couples therapy and I feel very lucky to have a partner that like was on this road with me and that um, was willing to go to couples therapy, which is hard for men to do. Um, so we've done a lot of good processing, but I just kind of share all of that because I, you know, I, we just don't talk about it enough. And I think for anybody who's out there dealing with this or, you know, who has friends dealing with this, I think the more we have these stories in the universe, the easier it is for us to understand and be compassionate. There's so much there I want to unpack. I know. So, I know. So I'm so grateful you you gave that sort of intro to yourself and your journey to kind of like piece things together of where we're kind of meeting. Um, my mom passed when I was 15. And when she passed, she had cervical and uterine cancer. And then when I turned 14 or 15, I started having really irregular periods and they still don't know why because the healthcare system doesn't believe black women, but that's a different topic for a different day. So with me, when I was younger, I would have my period every three months for three weeks. You know, they still don't know why. I think it, I'm not a doctor, but I think there was a lot of like, like that was around the time when like preventing cervical cancer, like all those like drugs and, and vaccines were coming out. And obviously with my family's history, my dad, obviously like, well, I want you to get this just to be careful. Um, but I remember my aunt vividly saying she's not letting her daughters do it because they don't know what the side effects yet are. So like that's been playing in my brain for a little while lately. But so I would like, so let's say I would have my menstrual cycle in March. I'd have it for three weeks and then I wouldn't have it again till like June, July. And then it would repeat itself. Now that I've gotten older, I'm lucky if I have a period like twice a year. And the doctors don't know why. There's nothing on my scans. Um, I think I might have endo and they just haven't diagnosed it yet. But there's like no cysts, no polyps, no nothing. And I'm just like, my hormones are 
cold and balance. And I'm just like, okay. So, but my, I love my gyno right now before I stopped having insurance because of COVID. Um, But my last gyno, Nicole, shout out to Nicole. um, She was like, she was really nervous. She's like, okay, but for you to not be shedding means that either A, you're not like releasing an egg or B, if you are, it's just not going anywhere, but there's nothing blocking it. So like we want to have insurance again, which again, healthcare system is bullshit. Um, that's something we really want to look out for. Yeah. So it's like, that's my own personal, like physical journey of like not knowing if I can even have a kid. So even that for me, turning 30 this year and really sitting with like friends who are parents and friends who are mothers and identify as mothers and talking with them about me wanting to adopt. Cause I too, like, I didn't want to pass on generational trauma, didn't want to pass on cancer. Cause my mom, my dad and my maternal grandfather all have cancer. And I was like, not going to risk it. Um, also being a nanny for years and like loving children that weren't biologically connected to me, being a godmother, being an aunt and just the ability to love children, regardless of how we're connected. I was like, okay, maybe adoption is the way that I go. Um, but, you know, I think it was Kim Kardashian. And if it's not her, I'm sorry, Kim, for throwing her under the bus. But she once said this quote of like, you know, I wasn't a woman until I became a mother. And I think about how fucking detrimental that is to every woman's experience because I'm not a woman until I have a baby. Like, that's bullshit, right? So, right. Right. <laughs> feelings. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the other thing, like, yeah, the, the healthcare system sucks. And um, yeah, it, it makes no sense. And I mean, an example of that is you can't diagnose an endometriosis until you have a laparoscopy, which is surgery. So you have to go under and it's expensive. And how, how is it? And I, and I'm not a doctor either, but like, how is it that we can't diagnose endometriosis? And it feels like if men had endometriosis, you would not have to have surgery to figure that out. So, um, yeah, no, I, I am with you. And I mean, like, yeah, racism is like all up in the healthcare system, particularly, particularly around reproduction. And yeah, it's, and pain and things like that, which all get tied up in this. So mm-hmm. yeah. well, lately, especially with everything going on, you know, the, the mortality rate of black mothers is like four times as high than white mothers in this country. And like in the world, like the U S has the worst yeah. like mortality rate for mothers than any other country. And I think what a lot of people don't know about that is that is even controlling for income and educational levels. So mm-hmm. like a black woman with a PhD and lots of money um, has worse outcomes than a white woman who has a high school degree and, um, you know, is lower income. So yeah, we've, yeah. It goes back to the racism of like, you know, that's why the stereotype of like the strong black woman is so detrimental because there's still healthcare professionals that think, you know, black bodies feel pain differently. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's it's such a thing to like to think about. I was like, first of all, I have no pain tolerance. So use me as as the example. Like I am the worst. Like I hate getting shots. I have five tattoos and my tattoo artists all hate me. Like it's it's fine. But I think about that often as like my body is just like hypersensitive to everything. Like I hear very well, I see very well, I smell very well. And it's just like, which also comes from trauma, which I realized the other day I was unpacking some things with a friend. Anyway, so different true. convo. Yes. Different convo for like your hyper, yes. like everything being hyper. I'm like, uh, explains a lot. Different. Yeah. Um, but I think of that, like for me, like I'll have like these really weird, like shooting pains often like in my, like my uterus or like in my vagina. And I'm just like, what is that? And I'm like, no, like this, I gaslight myself a lot lately. Yeah. And I'm like, no, like your pain is real. It is valid. But being told for so long by doctors, like if you lost weight or if you do this, I'm like, no, I work out, I eat right. Like the body I am in and how it looks does not mean I'm unhealthy. Yeah. Right. Like that whole thing too. Like if you're not 
110 pounds soaking wet and you're not in this range of the BMI, which is also fucking racist. Yeah. Um, then you're overweight. And I'm like, no, your fucking system is jacked up and listen yeah. to what I am saying to you. And so I just did a, um, a seminar with Planned Parenthood and was talking to the kids about that, talking to these youth about this of you are allowed to go to your doctor, tell them that you're experiencing this pain and talk about it. And they, if they say no, they, and you, you tell them, okay, we'll write that in the chart. Like you need to be your own advocate. And as a black woman who lost her mom at 15, who stopped talking to her dad at 18, I've kind of been on my own since 17, 18 years old and just be having to be that person for me. And so I'm really big on ingraining that in other people. Like, you are enough. You need to advocate for yourself. You, you, you know your body and your pain and all the shit that you go through. Don't let a doctor who met you five minutes ago tell you how you're feeling. And then also telling people like when you make that doctor's appointment, write down what was wrong that day, right? Because I think we'll, by the time we get to the doctors, that like power dynamic, we get so nervous to say what's wrong. Like, mm-hmm. but if you walk in with a sheet of paper or a list on your phone, just saying what you've been experiencing and your doctor doesn't believe you, they have you can tell them to write it in their chart. And it has been statistics proven that if you tell them, okay, well, if you don't want to diagnose me with something or hear out my pain and I want you to write it down, they are more likely to be like, well, let's take another look. Like them being held accountable sometimes what you have to do to be heard, which is bullshit. But I mean, you have to fight for yourself. You're not asking for too much. You're not being difficult. You're not being the angry insert race trope here. Like you are just asking for the same level of care they would give to anybody else. Yeah. Yes. 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 <laughs> also, I don't know if I sent you this article. We'll ha- maybe we can put it in the show notes. But um, the person who invented BMI also was big in the like phrenology movement, which was also fucking racist. Like it's yes, BMI is like also very tied to racism. And like also, what is bullshit about all of this is modern gynecology was founded on experimentation that was done on black female slaves. And so mm-hmm. like the fact that our gynecologists are not serving black women who like are the reason why we know the things we know about gynecology today is like just yeah well it's white I mean, supremacy white supremacy white supremacy well, that and like every <clears throat> just the history of this country testing everything on black people yes. and like yes. i think i said on the last show like the tuskegee syphilis yeah. experiments and everything else and i'm just like i tell people all the time if you googled today in black history every day your mind would fucking explode like the shit that black people have created explored and had to endure in this country alone but again different podcast episodes oh, <laughs> so, yes uh, we've 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 tanded it away from <laughs> yes, the topic, fostering think, and adopting but, but it's, it's all related exactly I mean, yeah well if we think you know even stepping back of you know not knowing the circumstances of every person who becomes pregnant um and their decision to have their baby or not have their baby but i also think about that as far as like healthcare goes and just mm-hmm. the access to abortion which i think is a really interesting thing to talk about when we talk about adopting and fostering because in this country you know especially now which let me unpack this it is bullshit that everyone anyone can tell a person what to do with their body number one number two not only women cis women have uteruses Number two. Yes. Number three, we live in a country where people control bodies, but then don't want to help us. Like if we have low income women 
not just, you know, all local income women, not just black ones, not just white ones, but them as a whole, who are now being forced to have children that they didn't want, who said that when they, they said they did not want this child, now have to have this baby, which is money they didn't want to spend because now they have to do all the prenatal vitamins, the checkups, the going to the doctor, the actual having the baby, the hospital stays, the x-rays, like all this money that goes into having a baby because you took away their choice to have this child. Not even to mention if there's a a trauma behind getting pregnant, right? Now we also have this child who's now in this world that is now with a parent who didn't want them. Mm -hmm. So now this parent either has to decide to raise them or put this kid up for adoption. If the parent keeps this kid and they're low income, now they need government assistance, which now they have this stereotype of being lazy on health, on social security or food stamps. And it's like, if you went back and unpacked how, again, ingrained in racism this is to, to, essentially, for lack of a better term, trap these people into choices that they weren't even able to make. And I'm just always like, yeah. if you just, again, like if cis white men had to go through having a baby, had to go through all the shit that other people have to go to go through in this country, it would look a lot different. And then also like the whole separation of church and state is bullshit because a lot of people are like, well, the Bible says this. I'm like, no, 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 this country is supposed to be founded on the separation of religion and everything else. But you saying that you are pro-life is essentially saying you're not listening to science because even and science has told us that like yes you could be you could have a fetus but they don't feel anything up until x amount or you know they don't have a heartbeat until this day but you know i think about right now especially what just happened with covid in this in texas trash ass gabbett uh put in an ordinance that you couldn't get an abortion and i just read this thing on Planned parenthood texas the other day about a woman who uh went into a clinic wanted to get an abortion um they told her that she had to come back the next day the next day the governor had shut down all the all the clinics so she had to drive to denver to take two pills one that day and one the second day and then she had to drive back because she didn't want to have the abortion in denver she wanted to have it at home and just like you know denver is a 12 hour if if you hit no traffic and you don't have to stop for gas is a 12 hour ride from austin to denver and i'm just always like the amount of hoops that the government puts people through in order to just have claim to our bodies is fucking ridiculous i'm also going to swear so much in this episode people that's why the explicit is there because growing up you know was told my whole life like you have choices these are your options and like i was a virgin until i was 22 23 and so you know even me like being in high school not near anywhere having sex but just watching tv shows and friends who had gotten pregnant of like talking through myself like if i got pregnant would i have the baby and just thinking through that like not even taking other things into account not even knowing like my parent like what my parents would say but just thinking of me as a person of you know i would have the option to either carry the baby to term and do an open adoption or you know you know and terminate the pregnancy but even just thinking about that as a 14 15 16 year old black girl living in a predominantly you know pretty diverse town not you know not affluent affluent but like middle class for sure but yeah it's like just thinking about that of just and like having friends who were pregnant in high school and it like not being a big deal like they weren't stigmatized in school accommodations were made for them like just all these things i think about all the time and like how privileged even just growing up seeing that i was and i think that's why i've grown up to just be like very pro-choice let people decide what to do with their bodies because that was what was modeled for me in school and having comprehensive sex education from the time we were in fifth grade and how important that is of like them being like abstinence is this celibacy is this but also safe sex practices are this and learning about 
our body learning about quote the female body and quote the male body and what that looks like and now they're starting to include gender which i really like different gender identities which is super important and healthy relationships which is also super important seeing what happens to your body when you're pregnant because lanta um but just all those things of like this is also why it is so important to have comprehensive education sex education healthcare, all the thing and now we can transition back to adopting and fostering Yeah. I mean, I think all of that is so important because it's, all of this is tied together. I mean, I was, um, I follow Angela Tucker on Instagram. She's a adoptee now an adult. And I believe she was an uh, interracial adoptee as well. And she was asked like, basically, are you pro-adoption or are you against adoption? And she was like, well, I don't want adoption to exist at all, right? Like the fact that a baby has to, not even a baby, like the fact that a child has to like be taken from a family and go to another family that like oftentimes does not share their race and like oftentimes they aren't growing up with access to their culture. Um, And even if they are, like there's still that grief and loss there. Like ideally, ideally adoption would never exist, right? But because adoption does exist and because these systems do exist, like, yes, I am pro there being people out there who like can adopt and like can provide those loving homes. But like, that's the challenge with all of this. It's all built on systems that like weren't made for us. Um, or in some cases, like as a white, as a white person, like we're, we're made for me, but like, but actually like don't serve me in the end, you know, mm. um, like they harm all of us. We just are sold the lie that they, that they're better for white people. Mm. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think everything you're saying plays into that. Like we need to, People deserve control over their bodies. They deserve to be able to choose when and how and if they have children. And, um, you know, and there are so many places where it's not that a person doesn't want the baby that they're having. Sometimes they very much want the baby, but they have three babies that they're taking care of and um, they want to do justice to the children that they have in their lives. And when you can't do that, that, that creates extra stress. And life mm-hmm. happens, especially to people of color who like, just everything is set up against, you know? So yeah. So I totally agree. But yeah, I'm looking at your notes right now and you know, I have a friend who actually I want to have her on the show soon. Um, She did interracial adopting. She's white. Her son is black and she's actually leaving Austin. She's lived here for 20 years, maybe like super well connected, worked for Obama. I could talk about her for hours. But right now her sister lives in New York. And so they're talking about moving um, into like a, a duplex or like a townhome. So like her sister can live downstairs with her family and then she'll live upstairs with her son. But she's moving out of Austin because right now her kid is almost two. And so right now he's a cute little black boy, but we know that in five years, I think it's around seven or eight, where little black boys are now seen as men, which, you know, we can also talk about the adultification of black children in our country and how, you know, white boys and white girls are seen as that until they're probably like 20, 30 years old. But, you know, black and brown children are seen as adults by the time they're like eight or nine. Um, And so she's leaving Austin because she's like, yeah, right now he's cute to people. But we're, we're living in Texas in a predominantly white town where she goes, you know, we do nature walks all the time. He loves being outside. But she goes, when Ahmad was murdered, I immediately thought of my kid because we live in this very white town. He could be running in our neighborhood where our neighbors know him. But if a new couple moves in and they don't know my kid and they think he doesn't fit in here, 
I was like, yeah, no, valid. I was like, I've thought, I was like, that's the thing I thought about too. Like if I have kids, will I dare to raise my kids in Austin? Like even just going up to like Pflugerville and Round Rock would be better for my kids um, if I adopt black children, which is my goal, especially working in social work. I want to adopt older kids. And like your your notes right here are saying like 100,000 kids in the US are waiting for adoption and over half of them are six or older. And just knowing the trauma that comes from being in the system, being essentially, you know, for lack of a better term, like essentially feeling like you weren't wanted and, you know, maybe bouncing around house to house. And I always think about that too. Like I would love to adopt older kids because I know they sit in the system longer. Right. So just, just all of that that goes into, you know, thinking about adopting of like being a parent is so selfless. And I tell people, I'm like, I'm not ready to be that selfless yet. Like there's so many things I want to do. And I, I was talking to a friend the other day, like, listen, I feel like even when I, you know, have the honor of becoming a mother, I still feel like I'll just be dragging my kids to all the protests and things that I do. Like we're just going to be <laughs> out there together all the time. But I think of how much you have to be willing to give up of yourself to make sure that this human is given everything that they need you know, you centering their needs before yours. And I, you know, I think like you were saying, a lot of parents know that in order to center what their kid needs, they have to give this kid up for adoption to give them a better chance. Yeah. Yeah. You just said so much there. Um, I mean, it's interesting and tragic in Texas that they, there are, um, if you adopt through the foster care system, there are some things that you can basically get them to give you even after you've adopted. So um, like uh, free college tuition and you can keep Medicaid and like you can um, get some financial incentives and those things exist specifically for I believe it's five different groups of kids because they're the least likely to get adopted. It's kids with special needs. It's um, sibling groups. It is um, single children, white children over the age of six. Um, I'm for, I'm gonna forget one, but it's also um, kids of color over the age of two. And like, how tragic is it that like we are so unlikely to adopt kids of color over the age of two that like we need to incentivize that adoption, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and my apologies for the group that I that I left out there, but um, yeah, and and I think like it is it is a tough choice. Like I didn't realize when I moved to Austin how. Um, how racially segregated and economically segregated Austin was. And like, upon realizing that I did question, like, should I live here? But like, we need white people to stay here and be fighting for equity, because if we don't have that, it's never going to change, right? Mm -hmm. So like, that's, that's at least where I land right now. Now, like thinking about raising kids of color, like one of my challenges is what I've learned from moving is like, as soon as you move, you lose your friend group. And like, you don't, you can move to where you might know other people, but it takes time to build those relationships. And I feel like I have a really good circle here of friends who like will be there for me and like are great role models for kids of any race, you know, including like, by the way, we need to raise white kids to be anti-racist too, mm-hmm. like, and to, to understand how to like work and live in multicultural and diverse environments. So like, that's sort of where I'm at right now. But like, I could absolutely see a situation where moving makes sense. And yet, I grew up in the Midwest and I would argue that like the Midwest is like just as racist, if not more racist than the South. It's just that the racism is a little different flavor. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think like just trying to confront 
that reality and just really, I mean, so much of this is finding community and making sure we're building those relationships. And like, that's how we dismantle white supremacy. It's not, you know, it's not through thinking that like, this is going to be magically solved anyway, which is like, again, not to question people's choices to move because like, I am not saying Austin is diverse by any means. So like, I totally see it making sense to move to other places where like walking down the street, you're going to see more people of color. Yeah. That same friend, she had made a Facebook post of like, you know, to my friends who think Franklin is cute now and our kids play together. What are you doing to teach your kid not to kill my kid? And that I was like, oh, <laughs> like knocked the air out of me. And I was like, oh shit. You know, talking to a lot of friends right now, because again, not a mother. Um, <laughs> and then like asking that, like, what are you doing right now? Like, where, what are the books you're reading? What are, how are you diversifying your kid's friend group? Like just something that I think you know, people don't really is like, is just so simple. Like me growing up in my neighborhood, I was lucky enough to literally every house on my street had a kid my age, right? Like we grew up with maybe like three to five years between all of us. And so it was like Andrew, me, Richie, Cliff, Ashley, Haley, Freddie, Nyree, Andrea, like Megan, Kelly, like I could, Heather, like just thinking of all the kids on my street and how close we still are. Like we still go to like all each other's weddings and, you know, just, just, you know, how lucky we were to grow up on the same street with different kids from different backgrounds. All of our parents got along. We all went to the same schools, like growing up in the burbs. I get it, people. But just that, like all of our parents were homeowners, like just thinking about what that means to grow up in that situation and how fortunate it was to have stable housing. And, you know, all of us growing up in a two parent household or in one, you know, or a parent household where our one single parent made X amount of dollars to afford to be able to for us to live in that neighborhood, right? Like I, that's never missed on me. And so that's the thing I always think about too. Like currently my financial situation is up in the air and questionable at best. Um, but thinking about that of like, if you want to adopt, you have to have like all these check marks, right? And, you know, I also think about like being a queer black person in, the, in this country. Like I can get denied a baby because I'm queer. And if I end up with a partner who is non-binary or trans, they have to constantly out themselves because of that, especially in the South, right? Like there's just so many hoops and bullshit that people who want to just raise a child have to go through. But then you think about, sorry, the shitty parents who are out here like just being terrible to their kids. And you're just like, you would rather this kid be in a situation where they are so mistreated than to be in a family where they will be loved unconditionally because of, again, your beliefs, right? Like it all goes back to religious beliefs because we've seen that like kids who grow up in two parent households, period, same sex parents, you know, hetero parents, different gendered parents, like if they have a two parent household, they tend to do better. Or if they just have a family that just loves them, they obviously do better. But just, you know, how racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia just really keep people from becoming parents and becoming families. And that's just a thing that I've been thinking about lately, too, because I'm like, I'm 30. And Lord knows if I'll ever get married. I tell people I'm on my Oprah year. I'm just like, maybe I'll find a partner and we'll see how I feel. But I think about that often, too. Of I will most likely be a single parent. So now I have to start thinking of stable housing because you have to have X amount of bedrooms to adopt a kid, how much money, you know, if we are in a state that will offer them um, free college. Because back in Connecticut, a girl I went to high school with, she was adopted. And so she went to an in-state school. She got to go to, she got tuition for free. Yeah, like they have these, that in Texas. There's all these things you have to think about, right? And I'm just like, you kind of start to like count yourself out because like, I don't cross off this. Like you already are like, because the system is so jank, you start to be like, okay, well, I'm never going to get a baby. So what are my other options? And yeah. And it, and it, and I, and I tell people like my whole life, like I've never seen myself as being someone's partner, but I've always seen myself as being 
being someone's parent. And so like, that is like the one thing I've always wanted. And so like now to be in this age in my life to be like, okay, maybe like I can start thinking about this to now be kind of feeling like, well, fuck, I might never be able to do that because of the system. Yeah. I mean, yes, you said so much there and I have like 20 different responses I want to give to that. But I think one thing that does give me hope, but is also like sad in in and of its own right, is like the CPS system itself is totally overloaded and like cannot do sufficient, sufficient training for parents on their own and cannot do thoughtful matching and transitions and things like that on their own. And so like there are child placing agencies that are nonprofits that do that work. And what's really unfortunate is a law was passed that said that those child placing agencies can discriminate um, on the base of sexual orientation um, and I believe gender identity as well. Um, But that being said, that law does not say they have to discriminate, thankfully. And so there are a lot of really great child placing agencies in Austin. Um, We're working through the Safe Alliance, but there are others that work with parents of any gender identity and sexual orientation and race and and do the work to make sure that they are working with parents who are going to be loving children of any sexual orientation, gender identity, race, etc. And so, you know, I do, that does give me hope because there are organizations that are trying to work against that. But like you said, it doesn't, it does not solve the fact that like you can't be dependent on when you're fostering, you get a small stipend every day, um, but it doesn't cover the costs of children. And like you said, like you have to have the bedroom and you have to have a certain square footage in the, the kid's bedroom and things like that. So like it's, there is a certain financial burden and, um, yeah, the system, the system has a lot of flaws. Um, not least of which, like even how we think about discipline, like how we discipline in this country comes from Europeans who like grew up in war and like famine and plagues and like brought all of that trauma over to the United States. And then like through slavery, like, like past that trauma, both emotionally and physically in terms of how we were treating other human beings. And so, and then we question like, why do some people discipline their kids in this way? It's because of whiteness. It's not, that is a, that is a white culture thing. That is not, you know, like kids are removed from black and brown families at disproportionate rates. And it may be that more and more people are moving away from physical punishment of children. Um, But it doesn't mean that any culture like that's, that is part of their culture, except whiteness, like whiteness brought that here. So I just like to make that point because I get really concerned anytime people start thinking like, oh, these people over there, and this isn't what you were saying, but like, you know what I mean? Like there are people who are like, those people over there, like the way they discipline their child is this, this, and that. When in fact, like black parents, have to be more caring and more protective of their children than any other, like, I should say parents of black children, but I mean, generally, like, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, it's just, the system is really, really difficult because it's even harder, as you're saying, for people of color and people from low-income backgrounds to be taking kids in to adopt and foster, let alone, like, by the way, we take kids away from families because of poverty as much as we take them away because of, like, other other physical needs. Like a lot of neglect cases are because like parents don't have housing and like may have turned to substance uses to self-medicate, right? But like that's not because they're bad people, right? Right. And that's the other hard thing. Like we cannot denigrate parents whose children have been taken away from them just because of X, Y, and Z. A lot of kids are taken away because of domestic violence. They're taking away from people who are the victims and like never get to go back because 
because mom's stuck in a, in a violent mm -hmm. situation where if she leaves, she's at danger of being killed. Right. Mm -hmm. And like our systems just aren't set up to understand the nuances of all of these things. I was recently watching a interview that uh, Amber Riley, who played on Glee and a bunch of other things who in my head, she's my best friend. Um, but she just did an interview with the comedian Kev on stage. And they were talking about the history of disciplining black children and how, you know, if we look at black people in this country, most, you know, most black people in this country who came here with their ancestors came here as slaves. And so you had black people in Africa thriving, like living in their own community, you know, from different tribes doing their own thing. Now you had, first of all, they were taken from their land, trauma. They're on boats for three months laying next to dead bodies, you know, uh, bodily fluids, all the things, trauma in darkness for three months on a boat trauma then they got here they were separated from their families because their families were sold trauma and then they didn't understand the language another form of trauma and then if they didn't do what they were told they were beaten or killed so you're saying you know like we we're just saying of how black parents discipline we learned that from white people we learned trauma from the white people who did this to our people and then you think about how now you know we come out of slavery jim crow exists segregation exists you know we had this many, 300, 400 years of slavery. Black people didn't, we still don't own anything. So now we have to work all of these jobs to kind of get any sort of foot ahead. But these parents have kids who they can't stay home and raise because they have to go work. So the only way they know how to discipline is quickly, right? So like me, you know, spanking my kid is my form of discipline because I don't have time to sit and talk to you and unpack things because I have to make sure you understand that you can't behave like this because white people will do this to you. Like I'm bringing my trauma to you quickly because I don't have the time to tell you why I'm doing these things because I have to go out and provide for you because history shows that I don't have money to pay for anything. So I have to do all these things to try to get my kid ahead, but I also am now causing trauma too. Like the cycle never fucking ends, right? Yeah. And so the amount of things we are now asking parents of color to do in a society that has taught us that, you know, quote, bad behavior means that you have to get disciplined, spank, you know, all these things in order to get ahead. And then we then take that same trauma move it ahead. And I often tell people like, I was lucky enough to grow up in a two family household. My mom was one of five. My dad was one of three. And I was an only child because they got it right the first time is what I tell people. Anyway. Absolutely. So, always my joke. But then my mom, like my mom couldn't have kids after me, like great because of her, her cancer stuff. But like being able to grow up in a two-family household, both my parents worked. My mom was a stay-at-home mom for a little while and she like kept my younger cousin. And so like we grew up with my mom being able to talk to us about things. Like my mom and I had the best relationship. Like she, we talked about literally everything from body image stuff to sex. So there's all these things, but that was a privilege I had to have a mom who would talk to me through things with me, right? And and so I was also tell the joke of like growing up, if I wanted anything, I had to do research into it. Like I wanted a guinea pig and I had to do write a five page paper as to why I wanted a guinea pig. It was a whole thing. I'm grateful now because it's like really helped my work ethic. But I think of that, like my parents didn't beat me. I was grounded, which I think was worse for me because I being an only child and having friends, but not being able to talk on the phone or go outside. But that's how I really got into reading, right? So like all these things I think about of like, you know, how my parents disciplined me was a privilege, right? Because they were spanked and, you know, my grandmother's always said like, I didn't have time to talk to my kids. I had five kids. I was working, working in a time where, you know, if I didn't show up to work or I left work early, I could probably lose my job because I was a black woman in America during the civil rights movements raising kids, right? Like I think about that.
about that all the time and having being able to have conversations with both my grandmothers who were luckily still here thank god i love them too but i think about that so much of how gen- just generationally things look different and you know the fact that i now am 30 and get to have conversations with my grandmothers about how they raised their kids my aunts and uncles of how they were raised and you know how things have really shifted like for me growing up and being in my house with just me and my mom and my dad and how i was raised versus my dad's sister so my aunt who had two kids she was a single mom and the way she disciplined her kids would scare me because i wasn't used to that and so i remember one time my aunt sitting down and be like brie you just live in a different house than my kids do and her explaining that to me because i would get so terrified i was like why why did your mom spank you like it was just such a foreign concept to me and you know feeling very lucky that she would explain that to me right like i just think about that all the time of just having the money essentially and the privileges and the things that we were able to have literally can shape how we raise our children is something I always think about. A hundred percent. And I think like that's why it's also so important for white parents who are thinking about going through this process to be be really cognizant of the trauma in their own bodies because, you know, like I said, like whiteness brought this over. Like white white folks, we've been passing trauma down through our bodies as well. And to bring a child of color into a house without having resolved that is problematic. So I really love anything by Resma Menachem. Love his book, My Grandmother's Hands, that talks about how white bodies and black bodies have passed trauma through generations in different ways that all comes from white bodied supremacy. And then I also love um, Karen Purvis's um, The Connected Child, which is all about trust-based relational intervention. But like you said, like it takes time. And like the luxury of time is something that when you have to work two, three jobs and take care of kids, you know, like you don't necessarily have that time to do. So yeah, basically it's all about being trauma informed and being aware of like the history of racism and all of that stuff. Not that I have all the answers by any means, (laughs) but there's a lot of work to do. I mean, same. I just want so much more for us right now, like as a society. And I think about that a lot with at the rate of, you know, the rate at which Black trans people are murdered, the Black Lives Matter movement kind of being rejuvenated right now. Um, We think about, you know, femicide in Turkey, which is a really big thing I've been looking into right now. You know, the vilification of the LGBTQIA community, the the adultification of Black and brown children, how we still have kids in cages because immigration is trash in this country, unpacking all the things, right? Politics, which make sure you register to vote, always. But I, I, I just think so much about how everything is so ingrained in whiteness being the default and how whiteness and masculinity are the defaults, I guess you should say, and cisness and heteroness and all the things. And how in this country, like especially right now, with like we are just asking to all be on the same level playing field. We're asking for equity and equality, minimum. And so as I think about adoption, and you know, I think one of the biggest things right now my that's coming to my mind, and, and I can't remember his name right now, but there's a trans man who him and his partner just had a baby like um he went off tea got pregnant and had a baby and it's like causing this huge big uproar in the country and like medical i'm like this man just had a uterus i don't understand what the big deal is but i mean what what a world right and so i just think about that too like why are we so obsessed with other people's bodies business (laughs) gender identity sexual orientation class 
you know, education level, like just how racist everything is. I think that's one of the biggest reasons why I kind of gave, quote, gave up on having my own kid because I saw that there are so many kids already in the world that need help and how our country is, I mean, our world is falling apart, but, you know, global warming is real. Um, sorry, climate change. Um, climate crisis, if uh, you will. God. <laughs> Funnily enough, I always think back, one of the first elections I really paid attention to was Gore Bush when I was like 12 because a nerd. But I loved Gore talking about global warming back when I was 12. And I'm like, I'm 30 now. So we've been talking about this for 15, 18 years. Anyway, digress. But I, I think about that all the time of, you know, if I am allotted the honor to become a parent and adopt a through adoption and, you know, just thinking about that of the life that I would be able to change, not even save, just change because of adoption and fostering and how many people could also do the same thing if we were willing to just let people do things safely, but just to be able to raise a child that they wanted and loved in the country that often tells our kids who are black and brown that you are not wanted. Um, I often think about too, like, I'm going to get in trouble for this, but like the people and celebrities who adopt kids from other countries. And I'm like, you know, there's children in our country who would love to be adopted, right? Or like, how our country is so quick to go help other countries, but we have veterans living on the streets and children starving or oh, owing school lunch debt, which fucking annoys me to know in. How many systems we don't have in place to make the world in our country more equitable. And so all of this to say is I just really want people to pay attention to the privileges they are allotted you know, the privilege of being a parent and what that means if you were able to adopt very swiftly, if you were able to get pregnant, if you were able to, you know, do all these things and just sit and think for a moment if you, if one of your privileges was taken away. Like, so if you were white, if you weren't white, if you were wealthy, if you weren't wealthy, if you have a home, if you didn't have a home, like just all these things that I think a lot of people are having to really realize around their privileges lately. Um, but I, I, that's, you know, when you brought this topic up, I was like, I know I'm going to tangent because I have a lot of feelings about adopting and fostering. Um, but then also like, like we've, we've been saying, how many systems are in place to kind of make that just so difficult and I know when we first hopped on you were saying you know I'm okay just like this adoption fostering fostering roller coaster is real and I was like I'm sure it is and just thinking about that of like we want to make sure obviously these kids who are adopted and put into foster care are, are done or are that that process is done safely to make sure the kids are okay but just thinking about again like I think about you know like I was just saying before me taking myself out of it because I'm like I'm not going to qualify but then you have these people who go through it and they are constantly told no not good enough try again but like how traumatizing that can be so you're just kind of for me I just I think I'd be like is it worth me going through this trauma because I mean we when we first got on talking about like the loss of it it's like the loss of like not being able to get pregnant or you know going through a miscarriage but then also like when you move to adopt and fostering now that continual trauma of like this room isn't big enough this you didn't have this lock on this cabinet so you can you know we're going to tell you no this time like just so many things that go into trying to foster and in and that trauma too and i and i don't want to minimize that because I, I could only imagine like just like i said just for me to even just start thinking about it and me saying no because i feel like it i just wouldn't be approved 
Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, like we don't make it easy enough for people to be able to foster and adopt and we don't make it easy enough for people to be able to keep their kids. Like for example, we tend to provide more money and support to people who are fostering and adopting than we do to the people who are trying to get their kids back. And so, mm. you know, like that's another challenge too. Is like if we could get people in like really in the kind of like harm reduction programs that like make help people make meaningful change, but then also like I don't know it's just so complicated because how do you how do you support people where they're at to be able to keep their kids because like I don't know I just it's such a hard process because in order for me to end up adopting a child it means that someone lost their child and it mm. means that a child lost their family and it's it's really devastating the um a quote that I read that just really speaks to me is Jody Lander said, a child born to another woman calls me mommy. The magnitude of that tragedy and the depths of that privilege are not lost on me. Mm. I mean, yeah, it's it, the whole process is grief. And I think that's like, I've been trying to think about, cause I'm trying to post about this just to like give people more awareness of the process, both because I want more people to be open to adopting, but also because I want people to understand the system and the challenges of the system. And like, I've been trying to think about how to talk about the grief of it. Like it's not, I think what's hard for me is it's not like, Oh, my water broke. We're going to the hospital. Like I give birth, which I'm, I totally understand is not like an easy thing to do. Right. But then like baby arrives and then, you know, like your circle does the meal train and like you're, you know, like you hopefully have paid family leave, which we all deserve. And why does our country not have that? But like, it's not that process. And, and even that, like, by the way, like not everybody loves their kid when they're born. And I think we don't say that enough. Mm -hmm. Like kids don't pop out and you're like, oh, this is the best thing that ever happened to me. Like, it's very normal to be like, I don't know why this human is in my house and why they keep crying and why I can't sleep right now. Right. But like, we sort of romanticize that whole process. And we have a lot of like things built up around that process. Whereas like, basically it feels a little bit like Chris and I are on this boat alone and we're not alone, but like, and, and like we're in this process right now because we're not doing emergency placement where they just call you and they say, Hey, we've got a kid ready in an hour. And the reason why we're not doing that is because I believe very firmly that kids should go back to their families when it's safe for them to do so. And I don't want to get attached to a kid and then have them go back and have any ounce of me like fighting that, you know, like I want kids to go back to their family. So I just feel like we're not in a place to do that right now. So we're doing, we're only um, looking at kids whose parental rights have either been terminated or are pretty likely to be terminated. And there's no other family um, that they could go to. So what's weird about the process is basically right now we're being sent information about kids, um, some of which is just like publicly available online because, you know, um, and I talk, was talking to a friend and she was like, it seems a little bit like uh, like slavery market. And I was like, you know, it's not too different. Like, it's basically like, here are these kids, you know, and I'm not like, the system is doing the best it can right now. There are a lot of flaws. Like, I'm not blaming anybody who's like come up with these heart galleries where you can see the kids. Like, it, it does does help kids get adopted. So like, that's the reality, right? But like, we get this information about these kids. And we basically just have to go off of this very little information and say, yeah, we're interested or no, we're not interested. And then we submit this home study, which is like all of this information about our whole lives and like 
the good and the bad, which just like it's sent by an email to some stranger and then they decide like who the best parents are. And if we're picked at that point, then like we get more information about the kids. And like sometimes we get information that makes us realize like we're not the best parents for these kids and we have to say no. And then there's grief for us because we're like, we still want those kids to have a good family. And it sucks to say no to kids. And that happened earlier this week. And then like on the flip side, like once we do match, like we have to help kids go through a process of saying goodbye to whoever they've been living with, be it their foster family or like maybe a family member who just can't take care of them long term. And like we also have to help them process like what it means to like be in our family and what family even means because sometimes they've never really known what a safe family is outside of their foster home. Um, so it's just like it's it's super messy and it's hard to talk about it in a way that like I'm grateful to be going through this process. I'm grateful to have the resources that I have. I'm grateful to have the support network that I have. But at the same time, it's still it's very lonely for us. And like there are these kids out here out there who like meeting people and they're like, are you going to be my parent? Are you going to be my parent? And like that sucks. Like it just sucks. And I don't know how to talk about it in any other way because it's not, it's not like, oh, yay, like kid arrives and it's this glorious adoption. Like sometimes adoptions fall apart. Like sometimes like kids come in and behaviors escalate and, you know, it's hard and it sucks. And um, so it's just weird, you know, like I'm so grateful to be going through this and I'm like really trying to be aware of my feelings at the same time because like if I'm not aware of my feelings, like we've talked about, like I'm going to pass that on to kids. So I don't know. I feel like I'm saying all this, but I'm like, but please think about adopting or fostering, yeah. right? You know, like it's, it's weird. I mean, it's just like, I think the thing that's hard about it is it's so sad. Like the whole thing is so sad. It's all sad. It's, it's like happy, you know, like we're gonna, we're gonna end up with kids, but like in order for kids to come into my home, they have to like, they have to have a lot of really awful things happen. Mm -hmm. Even if the awful thing is just, they got removed from their parents, you know, like the second somebody sets foot in foster care, even if they're removed and they shouldn't have been removed, it's sad. And I like, I feel grateful for all of the beautiful souls out there trying to make this broken system work and who are fighting for the system to change. I think that's a beautiful place to stop. I thank you so much for coming on and sharing this and having this conversation with me. I'll be sure to link everything we, sh we talked about in the show notes. But as you know, I like to end each episode with a sort of like palate cleanser, leaving us on a high note by asking the question, what is the best advice you were ever given? Or what's a piece of advice you would give to your younger self? I think, I guess, let me put it this way. The best thing that has ever happened to me is therapy. And I really, I guess here's, here's, the, here's the advice on that. Therapy is great. If you are in therapy and it's not like, it's hard. So yes, it's hard. But like if you see a therapist and you're not connecting with them and you're not feeling like it's helping, don't give up on therapy. Give up on that therapist. Like mm. find a new therapist because not all types of therapy are right for everybody. Not all therapists are right for everybody. But like everybody can benefit from talking to someone. We all have trauma. We all have things we need to work through. And we all deserve to have somebody in our lives that even if we only talk to them once a year, like we can call and be like, hey, I'm having a hard time. So couples therapy is great. Family therapy is great. Art therapy is great. Dance therapy is great. So do therapy. 
that's it for this week's episode of the tea with brie be sure to follow us on instagram at the tea with brie send me an email at the tea with brie at gmail.com and visit the website the tea with brie podcast.com don't forget to rate review and subscribe on apple podcast or we you get your podcasts a special thanks to mama duke for our theme music and i will talk to y'all next week bye <laughs>